This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. Monday, March 8th, 2021, and you are listening to Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George. I'm your host, Stuart Parker, and it's been another four weeks, which means that it's time to tune in to our regular political panel. Uh, there seems to be a certain amount of federal election saber-rattling. I've talked about this a bit on my blog and how we're getting some strong signals that not only will Justin Trudeau call an election while we're still dealing with COVID, that that, that, that election will likely be one that pivots around social issues, uh, free speech, women's reproductive rights, women's spaces, etc., so, weighing in on that subject are people representing four provincial political parties. Joining me on the line, as usual, for our March meeting is the political panel. Uh, Cheryl Weens of the Green Party coming in from Langley. Sam Schechter of the New Democrats coming in from New Westminster. Nathan Gita. For the BC Tories in Prince George, Ryan Campbell, the BC Liberal in Vancouver. Um, welcome back, folks. Thank you. Good to be back. Yeah. All right. Now, um, we've been noticing some election saber rattling. My last um, blog post was about signs that the Liberal Party of Canada might be preparing for a uh, spring election. And rather than talking about your federal political affiliations directly, I thought we might get into them sort of indirectly. Um, in this election, every provincial party ha makes a set of tactical choices and they don't always make the same tactical choices in every election. So I'm interested in hearing from folks, first of all, um, well, what tactical choice you think your party is likely to make. And then we'll figure out if it's a take that you agree with. But uh, um, let me start up with uh, Nathan, who probably has the fewest factors to compute uh, in this particular situation and ask, um, what do you, how do you think the BC Tories should engage with the federal election, with their federal counterpart, with other parties, with the campaign as a whole? I think they should sit down, uh, all of their federal MPs, the various parts of British Columbia, uh, who are running under the Tory banner, and they should all ask them the same question, that same test question that'll need to be asked at uh, the Liberal, uh, the BC Liberal, uh, leadership contest. The only question that really matters: uh, Would you have dismissed Laurie Thronis? Um, and so, to the same effect, would you have dismissed Derek Sloan? Uh, do you think canceling Derek Sloan was okay? Uh, and if you do, please leave. 
uh, that's the door. Uh, you can leave your membership behind, and uh, slowly but surely, the party can go back where it belongs, which is somewhere near conservatism. Unfortunately, what will end up happening, uh, because we're Tories in uh, this liberal wasteland of post-1967 Canada, uh, is we're going to have to just stump for the bizarre man in the red shoes pointing at toilets in Ottawa. Uh, and uh, we're going to have to keep stumping for him, and he'll lose. And then we'll find somebody else uh, to lose again. So I think Nathan got a, got to answer the only single level question because I'm not aware of anybody who's a BC Tory who isn't a federal Tory. That right, you're a subset of federal provincial Tories are a subset of federal Tories in terms of set theory. But everybody else here has got an uglier set, a more complex set. So, um, uh, Ryan, what do you think? Um, well, I'll ask what you think she should do, but what do you think Shirley Bond will do in terms of her engagement with the federal campaign? I don't think she'll do anything. She's an interim leader. She doesn't have the, the right really to set the direction of the party. I think most BC Liberals will lean to the federal Tories just because I think most of the federal liberals have left. Um, so it's, it's kind of a hollowed out party, unfortunately, but uh, we'll see. Um, I, I don't agree with that though. I, I think the liberal federal liberals from a pragmatic standpoint, the federal liberals are probably going to win and they're going to win in the places that, that the BC liberals need to do better. Um, so I think it will be smarter to emulate the federal liberals who've grown substantially in BC uh, like the, the the federal liberals have a higher share of their seats in BC than they've ever had, I think. Um, so, uh, except maybe under Trudeau in '68, and uh, yeah, I, I think that that's the direction they need to go is is where the voters are. So uh, you favor actually uh, amplifying that similarity of names instead of dem denigrating it in order to rebuild, use the federal election as a tool for rebuilding the base or rebalancing the base. Mm -hmm. um, Sam, obviously, uh, New Democrats have inherited uh, even more federal liberals than ever before. Um, how do you think uh, John Horgan should engage with the federal election? I think uh, Horgan's arithmetic on this has been simplified because the best outcome in Parliament is also the easiest tactical path for him. The best outcome for him is another liberal minority government because it gives New Democrats in BC, of which will, you know, it'll be a large percentage of the NDP caucus federally, will be New Democrats from BC, uh, barring any unforeseen, unlikely outcome. And if you've got a minority federal government, it gives uh, John Horgan a lot of uh, ability to persuade his BCMP caucus of New Democrats to take particular action that is favorable to his government, uh, our government, I should say, here in British Columbia, uh, of which he is head. Uh, so the 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 usual arithmetic of saying, well, we don't want to alienate the, the liberal voters who just brought us to, uh, the federal liberal voters who just brought us to a huge majority. Well, you know, we're a long way from the next provincial election. I think that he can risk alienating a few federal liberal voters right now if it helps maintain a minority federal government that he can squeeze a little bit better. And so for him, the best case scenario is electing 20 or 30 
New Democrat MPs in British Columbia. That would be an amazing outcome for him. It's not likely, but New Democrats have reached those numbers at, at particular times federally in BC. And if MPs can ride the coattails of the BC NDP into ridings we don't usually take, uh, I think that would be for him the best government outcome. And tactically, he doesn't need to explain it to anybody, especially his base. Well, this is, um, I got to say, just for historical comparison, you're suggesting the this is, is a rare strategy. And so I can think back to the last premier who used it, and it was Ernest Manning. Ernest Manning made sure to lock down as many Socred seats federally during the minority governments that started in 57, knowing that um, even if most of his voters were really Tories, having this fringe party whose caucus he had a huge portion of that held the balance of power, it made, yes, Manning the strong man of, um, of the West in uh, that Cold War Canada. Now, Cheryl, the um, obviously Andrew Weaver made a big deal of the difference between the federal and provincial Greens. Um, and it appears that that was beneficial um, in some key writings, uh, last provincial election. Um, should Sonia first now continue in that path? Should she sort of articulate a neutrality and pull back? Or is this a time to um, uh, throw in? Yeah, it's a really good question. And as I got more active in the BC Green Party, I quickly learned that we very much keep ourselves separate as Green Parties, uh, federal versus provincial. And we don't share lists or any of that sort of thing. And, um, and like you said, Andrew Weaver was a big fan of this method. But I did notice that Sonia endorsed two candidates for the federal leadership and um, has since held town halls with Anime Paul. And so I wonder if we aren't already starting down a different path. Um, and frankly, I'm good with it. I know there are some um, volunteers and people in the party who are definitely federal liberals and they will likely not be very happy. But as far as I'm concerned, most people assume the Green parties are working together anyways. So um, there's not too many, more people would be surprised to hear us that we're not working together, in my opinion. Now, um, some of this has to do with the, the um, you know, those calculations around federal liberals, because of course Weaver was a federal liberal. But <clears throat> in terms of numbers, um, what I see in polls is there are a bunch of people who vote Green provincially and NDP federally. We see that crew pretty overrepresented on Twitter, I would say. <clears throat> but I think that um, there is that sort of younger crew who are new Democrats who cannot stomach Horgan, who just, um, you know, folks like Joel Short, who finally threw up their hands last election and went, fine, I'm voting green. I don't even like these people. Uh, and I, I wonder, right, um, is that cost? Uh, I mean, how does one compensate for that potential cost? The cost of losing uh, of uh, not a, yes the, the problem is not having fit, having provincial liberals in your Green Party but what about the problem of there being federal New Democrats who support the provincial Greens? 
Yeah, I mean, I think they're quickly realizing that federally, at the federal level, the NDP isn't all that progressive and leftist. So I think pretty soon they're going to be disillusioned with the federal NDP part, uh, party of, if they already aren't. Yeah, so um, so this election is going to roll into town. Um, and I imagine we're going to have... Um, the federal parties weighing in on some significant provincial issues. Um, what do you expect um, the areas of overlapping jurisdiction or conflicting jurisdiction? Um, where do you think those things are going to um, are going to raise their heads? Pipelines. Hello. <laughs> I mean, just because the fight's been fought doesn't mean you can't keep fighting it. And, it, you know, everybody's going to get their two cents in on pipelines. They're going to try and create every wedge that they think they can take advantage of. And um, they'll, they'll try and, you know, New Democrats will try and uh, tie Trudeau to the Republicans. And uh, the Green Party will try and tie the NDP to, well, same Republicans probably. Um, and, you know, the, the various parties are going to try and get their wedges in. You know, some parties will have very clear, easy messages on pipelines. Some parties are going to have to, you know, do a bit of a two-step and, and bring out a, a little distraction, maybe something fun for the kids and, and uh, something to, hey, what are we talking about? I can't remember the topic anymore. What Next topic, please. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's going to, obviously, I think pipelines are a headache for anybody but the Greens. Uh, that uh, or the Tories. The, I think the Tories. That's have true. A they're a non-headache as well. I would say that's that's a good point. Do you do you have any uh, Nathan? Is there an anti-pipeline Tory constituency? Yeah, it's me. Um, <laughs> no, I no, I just I just you know I only like my kind of imperialism. I don't do your imperialism. I do my imperialism. So you know, as long as as long as I'm getting paid, then maybe I'll sing your song. But I no, I mean, I the one that I always like to bring up is against my establishment, uh, particularly BC Liberal, uh, provincially, but federal Tory, uh, federally, um, uh, comrades. Is I always tell them, sight sees not a done deal. You know, we'll go up into the hills, we'll get our three hundred threes. No, I'm just kidding. But the point is that, you know, it's it's it's. I mean, there's some day where it might not be built. Who knows? But I just I think in the Tory caucus, the biggest thing is that there's a there's a lack of direction, lack of coherence. Um, that's the big worry is that every everything looked really good with Aaron O'Toole until he opened his mouth, uh, especially his first press conference after he won, where like the SoCons might as well have all been like shot behind the cattle barn. Like it was they were just they were just dismissed, like out of hand immediately. The people who had landed him the nomination undoubtedly had not landed him the nomination uh, were just dismissed out of hand. And so coming into the federal election, it's going to be a question of between what COVID has done uh, well, to religious communities, but just in general to all of us, uh, what is doing to working people and can those working people uh, feel their belonging in the same thing that happened in 2016 in the United States. Can Aaron O'Toole do that for working people in Canada in 2021? I don't think so. Uh, despite the fact that he's from Durham, you know, that's where his riding is. Uh, that's a car town. They build cars there, you know, and to, much to Jeffy Day's chagrin, always uh, camping for the federal liberals. Uh, like he's he's the guy in Durham, not a federal liberal. So so I don't know what's going to happen there. I, I think it's Jim Day. Sorry. Um, the I think the thing is that 
if there's one thing that's kind of bothering the party, it's like, which way are they going to go? Are they going to give the guns and God people something to get them off their butts and come to the polls? Or are they going to continue to try and ape the liberals and lose anyways? And that's what's really bothering the party. Well, this, um, you, you suck me in here because I do, the way I was able to see that the spring election was real were the rumblings of the anti-hate uh, speech legislation, its return, and the theater around uh, Bill C-6. And it seems like the liberals are going to be running with a, a non-economic message that they that the Tories support conversion therapy and hate speech. If they can just get enough of the Tory backbench to vote against these two bills, which is, you know, a challenge because obviously, as, as you said, Nathan, um, you know, the, uh, the uh, your leaders basically saying the SOCONs need to duck down further. But for the other parties, um, how how would the election being a social issues election affect you and um how um and and what social issues do you think could work george you count health care is a social issue because uh, there, there is an issue that i think the ndp is going to have really strong uh, resonance on and that's moving long-term care into the canada health act it feels like a bit of a niche issue in a way but it's a classic NDP issue. They're the only ones, well, the only major party that I've heard of taking a, a strong stand on it. And goodness, if you haven't been sweating out grandma's survival in her long-term care home for the last 12 months, and look, there's a party that has a message that connects on that. And so the, the, the healthcare issue, I mean, we're in a pandemic. How can not it not be in an election about healthcare? And I understand what you're saying, like the good old social conservative boogeyman that the liberals can always bring out for, for a good time uh, between the 35 days uh, before an election, that that works. But if they're getting out flanked on health care, they're actually going to seem like, oh, yeah, right. We, we actually have let a lot of Canadians die on our watch and we haven't done such a good job. And we have resisted what seems like a very progressive social health policy. So I think that's one where the liberals have already taken their stance on that and they can't back off it. So I think it's a place where they'd be maybe a bit vulnerable. And I mean, they've probably polled a hundred times on, on these questions, but if there's a, a place where they might not want to go to the polls, I think it's that the vaccines haven't yet been delivered. And that was a talking point I've heard a little bit. Hey, I want my you want my ballot, you get me my vaccine. And two, hey, how come grandma is still in private care and not public care? The private care homes have worse survival rates. They have worse infection rates. Why aren't you doing anything for grandma? Uh, Ryan. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I don't think that's an issue that the liberals are going to let themselves get outflanked with. Trudeau has already said recently, he reversed himself and, and said that he supports national standards for long-term care. It's one of the top uh, ballots or top ballot items at the federal liberal convention as well, uh, if not the top item. So I don't think there's any any universe where the liberals themselves get outflanked. I think what we're all talking about here, though, in, in all these topics so far, is is the balance between being true to yourself, which I think has a lot of value, right? I don't think the 
the Tories becoming the fake liberals helps the Tories. I don't think the NDP becoming the fake liberals or the liberals becoming the fake NDP helps either party. Um, so there's a challenge of being true to yourself while still appealing to a broad enough set of the public, right? That, that, and, and it's a challenge. I, I don't know if there is a right answer to that. Like, I don't envy the Tories uh, with their, pro their, their internal conflicts between the social conservative element that is the majority of their base. Uh, and a majority of their donors and volunteers, and the the more socially progressive element that's the majority of the country that they have to appeal to if they want to win. How do you appeal to both? It's, it's it's an easier task, I think, for the liberals who have a much clearer position on social issues, maybe less clear on economic, um, to to be true to themselves because the economic issues don't tend to uh, rip families apart and so on. So. Yeah, well, well said in terms of the ripping families apart. There's um, uh, there's an interesting difference in like what motivates voters more strongly, and it's increasingly moved away from material factors towards values factors in Anglo America, especially as Canada has become more Americanized. Now, Cheryl, I'm 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 interested here in the. Um, uh, I said, what about so Nathan set up the social issues. I went, what about social issues? And um, Sam's like, okay, we need to pivot from social issues. And Ryan's like, we've got social issues covered. I don't even need to talk about them. We're already winning. And so I'm curious, last election, I was probably the, um, the person who went after the Greens the most on social issues. Like I was really angry about Elizabeth May uh, doing what she did on abortion infuriated me. I spilled so much ink. And it seems like when the Greens get into those social issues questions, I've had conversations both on and off the record with Green candidates. And there's a way in which the candidates sound lost in a way where they've really burnished their ability to talk about economics and other not classic environmental issues. There are a lot of things, justice reform, economics, green candidates sound really confident. You get into social issues and there's a lot more deer in the headlights and there's a lot more randomness. What do you think accounts for that? And do you think that the Greens will do better on that front this time? I mean, I sure hope so. I, in the last federal election, I was just so upset that the federal Green Party was completely focused on the NDP's antics on the island instead of actually campaigning. Um, so even if they talked about social issues, that would be a vast improvement from the last campaign. Um, having said that, I think uh, social issues are a huge wedge that um, if you want to use a word that uh, alt-rights tend to use more than me is the elites use to um, distract us from talking about the real issues, which are the economic and environmental issues. And um, so I hope we don't get stuck talking about abortion uh, all the time, although, you know, that is an issue. Uh, we need to really get down to work on economics and the environment. So I, I hope we won't allow ourselves to be divided arbitrarily by those discussions. 
Yeah, well, that's that's what most parties hope, except for the parties that benefit <laughs> from dividing voters along those lines. It's yeah. a lovely wave ride. No, it's it's a beautiful that that is the thing. Even when the Tories think they're losing because of it, they're really benefiting because you wouldn't have like a 28 percent floor vote without the SOCONs. It's a uh, it's an extraordinary thing. You are listening to Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7 on your FM dial on Monday the 8th of March. Four weeks have elapsed and that means it's time for our regular monthly political panel. Sam Schechter, Nathan Gita, uh, Cheryl Weens, and Ryan Campbell are in the middle of discussing how the different provincial political parties will handle a possible spring federal election. Now, of course, um, you know, I've talked a bit about like tactically how should John Horgan as a party leader behave during the election. Um, But there's a separate question, which is how should John Horgan as a premier behave during the election? Um, What is a BC agenda for him to adopt. He's got five weeks to, um, and Sam's saying, look, the more, you know, more NDP MPs, more power for Horgan in that parliament, but some of the power comes from your MPs. Some of the power comes from getting the public excited about an issue, getting the public to make that a priority. So what are the things that John Horgan should be trying to shake the federal leaders down for? Well, I'll jump out first here out of the gate and say I would really like to see uh, Horgan and the province fighting more on a national housing strategy. Apparently there was one, but I haven't seen any actual evidence of there being one. (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, I think right now the city of Vancouver is sort of embroiled in a battle um, over Strathcona Park. And, you know, where's the province on that? I, I, I don't see them doing much of anything. So I think Corgan would do well to make that an issue during the federal election. Uh, Ryan. I'll say on, on the housing front, I think that's, that's a, a good idea for something to get money for, um, that they could do some real good for people. And that I think that the liberals would be willing to, to come to pony up more on. Um, yeah, there is a national housing strategy. It's, uh, I believe, 600,000 units over 10 years, which keeps up for um, population growth, but nothing else. Um, so it's better than what we've been doing for the last 30 years. But I will say as a liberal, I expect the liberals to do better than just, eh, we're okay. Um, I think the other one that Horgan could, could probably shake down the Fed for some money on would be long-term care. I know he's got very ambitious plans uh, for building new long-term care homes and some matching federal funding would go a long way there uh yeah transit yeah. and another, i think that those are all uh, good targets uh, another one that he might target if he wants to help bolster uh new democrat candidates would be uh, issues around the opiate crisis funding or legislation around the op- opiate crisis 
but also he might like to get some federal politicians to say promise to pay for a SkyTrain to Langley or some other big infrastructure projects that he's promised that maybe he doesn't want to have to solely bankroll. And so, you know, if you look at it, okay, where are my $3 billion projects? I got one here, I got one here. Yeah, I might have another one over here. Where can I get the federal parties to pony up more than a third? Can I get them to pony up a half, two thirds? Where's, where are my promises being made? And uh, I think that's one where he could just go straight for the cash. Okay, so we've got uh, opioids, we've got infrastructure, we've got housing. Nathan, what should uh, John Horgan be trying to shake uh, leaders down for? You know, in my conversation with Aaron Ekman this week, uh, he was talking about, in his interpretation, the progressive argument for Site C, which is one of these bizarre moments where he's pro-development and I'm, well, I'm being grumpy. But anyways, one of the things that, that he said was really effective was like how the NDP always look like, well, I, I'm sorry, but it's already built. Like, it's already there. It's like not even built. It's just there. Like, I can't do anything about it. Right? It's like literally falling apart behind it. It's like, no, 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 no. I can't stop it. I'm sorry. And it's like, maybe they should just do that with like everything. Like if they're just, you know what, we're going to, we're not just going to force those Langley people to have a SkyTrain. We're building that SkyTrain all the way to mission and, and hope. Like that's what's going to happen. Like, but we can't stop it. Like, I can't believe they're promising this, but they're really going to do it. And they just do this for everything, right? It's like, oh, and they're going to build another pipeline. Again, we, we wish we could stop it, but we couldn't. And they just somehow get parties to basically make the campaign promises for them and all the infrastructure promises for them. And then they get built because they just throw their hands up like any Canadian. It's like, oh, well, I guess, what are you going to do? I'm time for an IPA and a nap. Like, what are you going to do? So not my circus, not my monkeys. Obviously, the Pontius Pilate position is, uh, is, uh, is solid for justifying a project. But um, let, me, let me pull this down into the weeds of discourse and go, the photo op problem, right? So last election, we had some photo op problems in the NDP, right? Will Horgan appear at the Liberal photo op or the NDP photo op? Now, Sam is strongly suggesting that Horgan needs to seriously, partisanly rebalance his photo op appearances. But there's also the question of if something is announced by a federal party, should the province weigh in to give it a greater appearance of reality? And I don't just refer to bringing the, the premier in with a, like a known, uh, with a, a project that's being proposed by the incumbent government that will likely be returned, right? People can go to all kinds of weird photo ops. Um, you know, for the first two years of the hardcore government, I was really able to annoy it by having Emory Barnes show up at photo ops. And it's like, oh dear, there's the, uh, there's Harcourt's seatmate, the MLA for Vancouver Burrard again. I guess this has some kind of legitimacy. And so, you know, sending Bowen Ma as a junior minister versus sending Bruce Ralston as a senior minister, um, all of these questions of optics, whose policies and proposals do you think it would be wise for the NDP to dignify and whose do you think they will dignify? So Stuart, I, I think that uh, somebody in Victoria uh, in a small discussion will draw a line and I think before, and maybe even during uh, the, the election period, 
the line is going to be this. Our ministers will go to announcements made by ministers. Government of Canada announcements. No party logos. We'll show up for any federal government announcement that, that is good for BC. And you'll see, yeah, you'll see federal liberal ministers standing next to provincially Democrat ministers, smiling, shaking hands, cutting ribbons, whatever it is. That will happen. Once the writ drops, I suspect that New Democrat ministers especially, I, mean, I don't know if there are any rogue uh, uh, New Democrat MLAs who've recently been elected that have sympathies to the federal liberals. I don't know our, our new caucus members well enough, but certainly the ministers, I would only expect to see at party events where there's a, a, a branded logo. And I would only expect to see um, the premier doing anything where, um, where the, the federal NDP leader was present. Now you gotta keep in mind the federal NDP leader has a seat here in BC. Uh, I don't think he currently lives in BC uh, because of COVID. I think he's actually residing with his mother uh, as part of a, a safe six or whatever they do in Ontario uh, situation. But his seat is in BC. So I, I think for major fundraising events, you might see the premier show up, but it'll be two, three times at the most, I would think, for the writ period. Uh, now, a couple of, now before COVID, um... Many anti-maskers and future anti-maskers who do not yet know they would be anti-maskers uh, were Western separatists. Um, and uh, there's obviously a particular way Western separatism refracts through the alt-right every election has, you know, since before I was born, certainly. Um, but there's, um, there's a bit of a, of a question, um, if we have, let's suppose, federal Tories um, taking um, where the vote is really whipped, uh, Aaron O'Toole is able to get everyone to vote for the anti-hate crimes law, um, you know, uh, that uh, irrespective of what its contents might be or how much it might overreach, uh, and similarly, uh, uh, for C6, um, is there uh, the possibility that either Maxime Overdrive or the uh, Western separatists could make some kind of populist impact out here? If the Tories decide to go a really non-populist route, um, could something like that happen, given all these double-digit figures in the North and the interior for really obscure parties? Like, the Libertarian Party has never got 12% of the vote before. The uh, rural British Columbia Party was an unheard of entity. The Tories, you know, got triple the NDP's vote in the Peace River country. So is there a possibility that we'll see the beginnings of another populist, either um, separatist or white nationalist um, iteration? I mean, it's possible, but I think that I think that those lines will even get a little bit tighter because what what's really going on there is that you're just having a second reform movement. Right. And I mean, yeah. that's where that's where they're going to be able to pivot. Right. Because they can go you can go ahead and cast aspersions like that all day. But one, there's a lot of people in northern uh, northern BC who are of color, to use the words of our day, 
and they don't like not being heard by Ottawa and Victoria and everywhere else just as much as those of us who are not of color. And uh, further to that, uh, and further to that, even uh, you'd you'd have a place for a wedge, let's say, with even the wet suetin, right? Like the wet suetin uh, don't feel hurt either. So if they don't feel hurt, uh, maybe they would throw in their lot with the separatists as ugly an alliance as that might look to certain progressive circles. So there's a lot of wedges dangling around to start throwing around. And ultimately, it comes down to a lack of accountability out of Ottawa and Victoria and and well, all all the major centers in the in both Western Canada and Central Canada that don't seem to listen to anybody that's more than five miles away from a Capitol building. So, you know, I think that that's why that might ferment. And if it does ferment, then we're going to see another split in the right, and that'll be Aaron O'Toole's doing in in a sense. So, um, uh, yeah, and that, that's very much my sense. I mean, I did not want to suggest that. I'm just saying that the parties as they exist now are tiny, right? The People's Party, 1.3%. Real people who weren't voting on fairly racial lines just stuck with the Tories and chewed their tongues rather than vote for uh, for Bernier. And so, and similarly with the Western separatist parties, right? They're tiny right now. They're even smaller than the People's Party. Um, now in the Southwest, is there a corresponding sense of that? Like we felt that pretty strongly during the provincial up here. You guys had very different outcomes down there. Is there a sense that there's any kind of populist message or um, dark horse that could take off in that little uh, that little spot where uh, two thirds of us live? I, no? I don't, yeah, I, I agree no. with Sam. I don't think so, but I do think that the field is ripe if somebody comes along, you know, and takes advantage of the situation. I mean, you saw what happened at the Braided Warriors um, protest in Vancouver uh, recently where um, passerby did, you know, the Heil Hitler sign. And I, I just, I just think that, um, I think that those attitudes are very much around and uh you know we have regular anti-masker protests and things and so um if you have the right person uh you know communicating with that group they could form something sam yeah i don't think that it's likely that metro vancouver is going to have a fringe populist party spring up and and capture the imagination of a large number of voters uh, I think we're probably going to, if there's a federal election in the next three months, I think it's going to be almost as boring as the provincial election we had five months ago or whatever it was. Um, it, it's not going to really capture the hearts and minds of anybody, I don't think. Uh, it, it's, it, it won't be a fully Seinfeld election. It, there, there will be issues that there is something to, to win and gain. And also, a lot of the times when a party fractures, it's when they're in government. The party's in government and they finally pass legislation or don't pass legislation or introduce a tax or whatever it is that they do or don't do that somebody in the party finds completely unacceptable and it fractures them. Um, the, the reform party came to life under Mulroney, right? Uh, the, the Green party came to life in BC as the NDP was collapsing in 2001. Uh, so no offense to you, Stuart, it was, it grew. Uh, anyways, but um, uh, in, in any case, um, the, the Tories are in opposition right now. 
as much as Aaron O'Toole might want to silence people, he hasn't done, he said things they might not like, but he hasn't gone into, into office uh, in government to do something they don't like. So I, I, think it's, I think it's a fringe possibility of a fringe party. I would vote against, I would, I would bet against it heavily. Ryan. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree there. I, I just don't think there's definitely, you know, populist and let's, let's say bad populist elements, because there's obviously the good form of populism as well um, that uh, are in Vancouver. But I think Vancouver is so diverse that the different pockets of populism have a hard time of like connecting, right? Like if it's populism built around uh, white nationalism, it doesn't, it's not going to connect with the other half of the population, right? No, I, Nathan, I'm not saying all, all, Nathan's giving me a frowning face here. I'm not, I'm not saying all populism is connected to white nationalism. I'm just saying some of it is, but that has a hard time connecting with other groups in, in like if you're in the Chinese community or if you're in, in, in the Sikh community or so on and so forth, it, it doesn't sell as well. And you, you need to, it, it, building any coalition in Vancouver is very difficult because we're so diverse, not just ethnically and religiously, but also uh, d- demographically and and politically. We're, we're I think, the, one of the most diverse places in the world. And so for a new group to build a winning coalition here, I think it would be very challenging. So um, it sounds like then, in some ways, um, are well, there will be a series of federal elections in BC, just as there are a series of provincial elections. There'll be one on Vancouver Island, there'll be one in the Lower Mainland, and there'll be one in the rest of the province, and they'll be nominally in communication with each other. Now, um, I, uh, I've been, uh, so Sven Robinson is still here. He might seek the, uh, NDP nomination for the uh, the cursed riding uh, that defeated Tommy Douglas, um, he might uh, he might do that again, and so we can we can imagine like a thing. This is something that might gum up the NDP's narrative, right? That um, the uh, especially I don't know if you've seen him on Twitter this week, but it's he's had it with Jagmeet Singh. He's absolutely had it. And uh, so we can imagine Sven seeking the nomination and it being particularly in Sam's theory of how campaigns work, a giant hassle that the message might land in deep cove again and um, be way off the campaign trail. Um, But I'm, I haven't been watching out for like other potential calamities uh, for one party or another in the election. Uh, and I'm just interested whether you're talking about your own party or another party, what would be some, what would be something that I wouldn't call it bad luck exactly, but what might disrupt um, what is otherwise going to be the plan for the campaign? And Sam. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that if Sven became a candidate, it'd be hugely disruptive to the, the central NDP's message. I don't think it would be fatal. Uh, I think it would be disruptive. I think the bigger problem is the one that's, that Cheryl alluded to earlier. Of all the major parties, the Green Party is the least familiar with its own candidates, has the least ability to vet them, and has the least ability to be selective. The other major parties, mostly, if they find somebody coming forward who is not palatable, they can usually recruit an, a different candidate. The Green Party is often scrambling. 
uh, the last provincial candidate, they couldn't, uh, last provincial election, they couldn't field an entire slate. Um, yeah, that and- was the NDP's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is ever the fault of your adversary. Anyways, moving on, the Green Party that was completely unable to field a full slate of candidates in the last provincial election would again, uh, as a federal party that I'm sure is unaffiliated, uh, would again have difficulty recruiting quality candidates. And all you need is Cheryl's worst nightmare to come true. Your, your Green Party candidate for the peace or, or Prince George or wherever to say, you know, we got to ban abortion. <laughs> That's going to be, you know, I'm in the Green Party because I'm pro-life. I support animal rights life. I support unborn life. I support tree life. And it's all equal. Right. And, you know, and it just would blow up the green message because people are going to say, you know, your, your dog is not equal to my child or a tree. Like, what? Um, a- so, so Riot is now really into this. It's yes. great looking at all this enthusiasm. <laughs> I should have asked this at the beginning that we could all have just like fantasized different political horror stories. Go, Ryan. Well, I, I got a real horror story that there was a gentleman who I won't name because he's very litigious, uh, who ran in, in, uh, Newton North Delta uh, for the Greens uh, about uh, a while ago. And uh, he may have said something along the lines of the, the Jews, in quotes, being behind 9-11. And Elizabeth May had to rip up his nomination paper and not run a candidate. And this guy, he, he's, he's made his tour around a few parties. He's been an NDP member. He's been a liberal member. He's been a Green member. But uh, so I, I just wanted to say that that even Sam's imagination of the worst candidate you could have, there, there's worse. I've seen worse, <laughs> personally seen worse. But the, the media's decision to cover worse is also kind of random. So you can always get away with stuff. Nathan, any any fantasies of calamity for yourself or others? If the Green Party candidate says that in my writing, I'm voting for them. I got that's just a full endorsement on my end because at least they're they're more right than they're wrong on that. They they got the spirit. Um, in any case, uh, I think that I think that like horror stories. I mean, for us conservatives, it's always an uphill battle. But where but but it, but it almost becomes white noise with what the media does to us because a conservative could say the most slightest remark and it's going to get blown out of proportion. You know, our prime minister can show up in blackface. Nobody cares. So that's, so that's what we have to deal with. Uh, and that's this country. And that's why we're never going to get anywhere as a country until we have some major reform internally in the party. Uh, what's wrong is that uh, good candidates do get uh, tossed under the bus. So we did have a candidate last time that was an absolute nightmare, not too far away. Mr. Cullen uh, decided to become a provincial NDP guy. Uh, and someday, of course, he'll run the party, which at least he'll be better to look at and sm- sound kind of smarter. So that'll be nice. But in any case, uh, he left the federal uh, riding, so he left it to a successor. Um, that was a chance, right? That was a chance for the Tories to make way. And there were some smart candidates to put themselves forward. The Tories purposefully undermined the best candidates, put in a woman who uh, was giving her boyfriend human remains, as had been documented, uh, and uh, had piercings all over her face. I, I don't have a problem with that. But 
for the Tory message in the writing, that didn't work, as you can imagine. So, so wrong image, wrong practice, uh, wrong delivery, and and as a good friend of mine who votes NDP has long said, um, you know, this writing is cursed when it comes to the Tories. They just can't come up with a good candidate's writing, even when good candidates put themselves forward. So for us Tories, it's more the internal battle. The party always picks people that are the worst, and we have to fight it every time. So... I noticed that there was a disproportionate amount of uh, uh, going after uh, our, our green on um, on the calamity front. So <laughs> I'm uh, I'm asking for a, a second round here. Um, how? So as Sam points out, Justin Trudeau's built the most, the largest, uh, the best BC machine the Liberals have had since 1871. Uh, there's no time where they were doing better, not even 68, um, not even when the liberals were the Western protest party. Um, so it seems like we're probably going to have another liberal government. It'll likely be a minority, maybe a slim majority. Um, how can Justin Trudeau lose all those seats? What would it take for uh, Justin Trudeau to throw all these uh, these seats in suburban Vancouver away? Uh, Stuart, Sam, something we don't talk about enough in elections is luck. Luck matters in an election campaign. It is real. It comes and goes. I'm not going to tell you the NDP winning 59 seats in Quebec. Uh, during the Orange Crush was us being brilliant. It, it was caprice. It was total electoral caprice. And it was luck that we were the dumb fools who happened to be the beneficiary of that capricious voter attitude. Luck matters. Justin Trudeau, what has he done that has captured the hearts and minds of voters since sunny days? If you said, what is the legacy of Justin Trudeau? People say, well, we got pot legalized and he was in blackface and I don't know, things seem to be going along smoothly, I guess, you know, is that the legacy of Justin Trudeau? Because if you ask your average voter, that might be the answer. And so those suburban voters who are looking for something to vote for, who are thinking, you know, I did vote for the liberals, but I can't remember what it got me. You know, I'm busy today. I'm not going to vote. You can lose an election on luck that you just happen to not connect, that people just lose enthusiasm, that you know there just happens to be a shift in ways. You get a bad news story, you get a bozo candidate who, yeah, who says, you know, we should really um, make Christianity the official religion and, and you know make that a rule. You get a candidate in the federal liberal party say that, and it's a huge problem, and you don't know to a certainty that it could never happen. You think it could never happen, you just never know. And so, you know, Justin Trudeau could lose because of apathy, because he hasn't kept that connection. He's got a good machine here in BC. He's got good fundraising roots. He, he's solidified his base here. But, you know, people might just not care. And something strange could always happen. You know, you lose five seats to the NDP, five seats to the Conservatives. All of a sudden, that's a big change. That, that's that's a, a, actually a shift that could affect whether or not you have a majority or a minority. Uh, you know, Cheryl. Yeah, I'm not sure there's really anything he can do because I feel like he's screwed everything up pretty well and um, seems to be doing fine. Uh, you know, there's the Wee scandal and the Governor General and and Jody Wilson Raybould and and um, Sel Selena Caesar Chavan and like 
it just goes on and on. And so, I mean, I guess as long as he keeps his nice hair and his nice socks, then he'll be fine. Uh, Nathan, anything you see is possibly uh, bringing him, uh, how, how could he trip over his feet? I think, I think the key is kind of, in a sense, the same thing as last time the Liberals fell apart. It's Quebec. It's Quebec, right? Um, so, I mean, unfortunately, that's a long ways away from us, and we don't have a lot of influence over what our brothers and sisters off francophone uh, think and do, and, of course, the Anglophone side of them as well. But the fact of the matter is, is that Quebec is feeling, I think, bullish. They've got a surplus. Their society is navigating this whole true to themselves question pretty well from a practical standpoint, not from a principled one or philosophical one that I necessarily agree with, but they do have a society and they do have an identity and they're moving in a direction. And so they, and while, while Alberta flags, they are, they are gaining ground. So Quebec has a real, you know, a real place to play in this election. And it's quite possible that the bloc increases its seat share if it takes enough, as has always been the case since the Liberals had to get back into central Canada, they, they lose, you know, they lose. If the Tories can hold their lines or even pick up a few more of where the red wave punctured last time and Quebec defects, uh, the Liberals are in trouble. So we're leaving Ryan the uh, last word. What do you hope doesn't happen? I, I hope for the continued mediocrity of the Liberals' opponents. That's what I hope for. And I think that's been the biggest, uh, biggest benefit for Justin Trudeau, that he, he had a real fight in 2015, but not in 2019. And uh, that, that's, I think, not to the detriment of the country, actually, that I, I think the, other, the opposition needs to step up its game. All right. Well, um, we might be in a federal election before the next call. Uh, regardless, I don't think these predictions are going to age that badly. I think this is some solid stuff. So I want to thank you all for uh, coming on this week. Uh, and we'll talk to you in a month. Always a pleasure, Stuart. All right. Bye-bye. As some of you know, for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be broadcasting twice a week on CFUR 88.7. I'll continue to occupy this regular time slot on Monday mornings, but on Friday evenings at 8 p.m., I will be uh, broadcasting Los Altos Radio, the first season of podcast documentaries my institute is doing. So please consider joining Dan Jennison and me on uh, Friday at 8 or later in the week via podcast on Anchor FM or your preferred podcasting platform to hear uh, my documentary tribute series to the work of James Burke, the science historian who created the show The Day the Universe Changed back during the Cold War. Anyway, here's a little uh, piece of uh, teaser footage from the show. 
uh, where Dan and I are talking about the rise of the modern world. The unfairness of that agricultural labor, right, is dramatized in the Bible itself, in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, where in the morning, the um, Lord of the vineyard goes to town and he uh, gets a bunch of laborers uh, to um, pick his grapes before the first frost comes that night. And at around noon, he realizes he doesn't have enough laborers. And he goes back to town and he hires more. The sun is setting. The grapes still haven't all been picked. The frost is coming any minute. He returns to town a third time and hires the remaining laborers he needs. And then the frost comes, the grapes are all picked, and he pays each group of laborers the same. Uh, because they're equally deserving. Uh, because it doesn't matter what, and this is of course a metaphor for conversion. No matter when you come to Christ, you get the same reward. Mm-hmm. But we also have to remember that there's a literalism to this that we, that we lose in the modern world. That this is also a direct economic critique of how migrant laborers are paid. That like it's arbitrary and unfair at what time of day you're hired or how long you're hired for. That's in the hands of the bosses. And the idea that some people wouldn't get enough money to live on simply because of the arbitrary order in which someone chose to hire them, you can see that there's a material critique of that injustice that's already framing the consciousness of people in this time. And that's why the rewrite of the Bible, the retranslation of the Bible is such an important part of this because of the palpable injustice of moving to a proto-capitalist system based around a gentry away from a feudal system based around an aristocracy. So folks, that's just a little taste of the show. I really encourage you to consider uh, tuning in and... uh, listening to our documentary podcast series. You can uh, find out how to listen live on the CFUR website, or you can go to Los Altos website, losaltos.ca, and uh, click our Los Altos radio tab for all the information you need about the different ways you can experience this show. Anyway, Thanks for listening to the promo, and thanks for continuing to tune into the show. We'll see you next week. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A.